episode 11. Welcome back, friends. God bless you and thank you for tuning in today. This is Bible FAQ with Kirk Van, the podcast that provides brief, thoughtful, biblical answers to your questions. I'm Kirk Van Odeham, your host, and today I'll be answering yet another question submitted by a listener just like you. Well, I just have one question I'm going to attempt to answer today uh, because it does get a little bit involved. Uh, and before I answer today's question, I want to just uh, give a brief content advisory. Now, not to alarm you, but before I answer this question, I want to tell you uh, that it does deal in part with the topic of sexuality. So obviously I'm not going to be too risque, but I will deal with some uh, mature content in this question. So if you're listening and there uh, may be young ears uh, within uh, earshot, uh, you may want to take appropriate measures if you don't want them to hear this discussion today. Sorry to be dramatic about this, uh, but you may find the warning to be misplaced because, as I said, I'm not going to get too crazy in my uh, description here or anything like that. But better safe than sorry if you have little ones around. So you have been alerted. The forthcoming question does deal with a topic for mature audiences. And this is a question I received a few weeks ago uh, via Facebook. And let me read the question. It says, Hi, Pastor Kirk. While looking for another scripture, I read 1 Corinthians 7 and 5. I ended up looking it up in the Blue Letter Bible to compare the King James Version with the Greek. What's the best way to interpret this text? Thank you. Well, the entire chapter or section of 1 Corinthians 7 uh, is on the subject of marriage. And it talks about, uh, within, the, within the context of marriage, it talks about sex, it talks about singleness, or in other words, the question to be married or unmarried. It talks about separation and divorce, and a little bit about remarriage. And it's not uh, exhaustive on this topic, but it does draw it into the conversation. It talks about uh, the situation when one has an unbelieving spouse, and other related topics on the top on the question of marriage. It's also important to note that First Corinthians. Uh, this epistle that Paul wrote, uh, the first six chapters, Paul is dealing with general problems or disorder in the church. Uh, but with this chapter, chapter number seven, uh, he begins to change focus. And now he begins to answer specific questions that have been sent to him uh, by the Corinthian church or by, from representatives of the Corinthian church. And so this is the first question that he answers, but throughout the rest of the book of 1 Corinthians, there are others as well. And this is clear from the very first verse when it says, now in response to the matters that you wrote about, etc., etc. So Paul is just attempting here, and this is the first question, or the first topic uh, that he delves into, uh, attempting to answer the questions that the Corinthians have sent him and asked about. So I'll provide specific questions. Uh, answer to the question about 1 Corinthians 7 and 5 that the uh, that the message sent to me uh, cited, uh, but 
I want to take an opportunity here to understand it more properly within the wider context of the first portion of this chapter. So let me read the passage, and I'm, I'm going to read the first five verses so we understand the background and the context of this verse number five. So I'm going to read here from the English Standard Version, and later we'll refer to the King James Version. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So the main question being asked here by the Corinthian church, and let me just kind of summarize and paraphrase it, is the question, is it good for believers to be celibate? Is it good for believers to be celibate? And of course, by celibate, I mean uh, to make a lifelong decision to refrain from sexual activity. Now, in the context of scriptural teaching, the Bible as a whole, the question is parallel with that of whether one should marry or remain single. And I say that due to the biblical fact that the only allowable or condonable sexual relationship or sexual activity is that between a husband and a wife. So the question of celibacy and singleness uh, is, inter, uh, is inextricably linked. Uh, there's no such thing in, in scriptural morality of, of uh, having a sexual relationship other than within a marriage between a husband and a wife. And so I'm not going to take the time to substantiate those claims because they're well known, but this is the consistent testimony of the Bible, New Testament and Old Testament, and are both replete with examples. Uh, so therefore, Paul answers the question about whether it's good not to be, uh, whether it's good for believers to be celibate, but he also takes this as an opportunity to address related merit, uh, excuse me, related matters pertaining to sex. Uh, and marriage, as we see he does throughout the whole entire chapter. So more specifically here, Paul is addressing the idea of whether or not celibacy is good. And this word in this word good in the first verse of chapter seven is kalos. It's one of those multifaceted words that can have many different definitions and meanings depending on the context. But in this context of this verse, it simply means, is it admirable? Is it commendable, noble, valuable, virtuous? So the heart of the question really is, is it better or is it beneficial to remain celibate or to remain unmarried uh, than to marry? And kind of implied in this question, we'll look at it briefly also, is uh, the question, is there something inherently wrong with sex, even in marriage, that would make it better to avoid marriage uh, the, the, uh, so that you can avoid sex altogether? That's kind of what's implied in the question as well. And we'll look at that briefly. So they had a very good reason to ask this question in the, uh, in the era of the early church, the uh, the Bible itself and also history tells us that there were false teachers that were sowing confusion uh, among believers about the topic of, of sex and marriage. And uh, 
you know, we have to realize that at the time in the early church, these born-again believers were being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit and therefore had a sincere desire and passion to live a life that was pleasing to God to the greatest extent possible. And so they were asking questions about uh, what they can do and because they wanted to do everything they could do in order to serve the Lord and live for Him. And so unfortunately, some took advantage of this and began teaching false doctrine and led people astray uh, in a variety of different ways for a, a variety of different reasons that we don't have time to get into. But this is certainly one of those ways and one of those false doctrines is on the question of sex and marriage. And uh, there's one uh, scripture that I'll read here in 1 Timothy chapter number 4. Now the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter time some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. They forbid marriage and demand absence from food that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. So just very quickly, uh, this verse of Scripture is confirming uh, that the Apostle Paul was teaching, you know, here in these uh, latter times that people are departing from the faith. And the reason they're doing that is because they're, they're listening to or they're paying attention to these deceitful sp spirits, these doctrines of devils, the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. And one of the primary false doctrines that they're ad these false teachers are advocating for is forbidding marriage. And of course, by extension, the reason for the forbidding of marriage is for the for forbidding of sexual activity, uh, which is only condoned uh, in the proper context of a, uh, 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 of a holy, holy matrimony. And so uh, they had good reason to ask this question because these false teachers were sowing discord and confusion. So let me answer the question directly. Is it good? That is, is it better or beneficial uh, spiritually, whatever, for a person to be celibate? Now, Paul doesn't give a yes or no answer to this question. He starts out with saying the most common thing will be for a man to have his own wife and a woman to have her, her own husband. Uh, and then he goes on to, to say that there's both pros and cons to celibacy. And he actually personally, Paul personally advocates for celibacy for reasons I'll delineate here in just a moment. But he also points out that that's not the commandment or the expectation that God has for everyone. So there's not a single answer because it's an individual matter. And verse seven, uh, Paul says each man, or, or excuse me, each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another has that. In other words, God gives grace to some to remain unmarried and therefore celibate, but other he calls into marital union. And based on verse six, there is no commandment, there's no directive, there's no rule either way, either to remain single and celibate or to become married and enter into sexual union with your spouse. We have permission or discretion to choose whichever path we feel that God is leading us individually. And so Paul provides pros and cons for remaining uh, unmarried and therefore celibate. And so, you know, Paul acknowledges that uh, there are benefits to being single. And he points out that he himself is unmarried. Uh, and he encourages the singles and widows to, as the King James says, abide even as I. In other words, to, to, to also remain celibate and unmarried. Now, it's unclear whether Paul was always single or whether he was at one time married and has become widowed. 
But whichever the case may be, we, we don't know historically or biblically, whichever the case may be, he was certainly not married during the ministry, the season of his ministry that's recorded uh, in the New Testament. So verse 25 and elsewhere in this, in this passage, he says, I have no commandment from the Lord. In other words, there is no universal commandment or expectation one way or the other uh, to be unmarried and celibate or to be married and to enter into sexual union with your spouse. Uh, there, there is no commandment. God doesn't prefer celibacy overall, uh, but it is Paul's advice to those who have the grace to receive it. Uh, to remain single and therefore celibate. And he gives two reasons for this, uh, why uh, this is advantageous in some ways. First, in verse 26, he says, in view of this present distress, and that's most likely referring to the, the extreme persecution that was taking place against believers in the day and age and, and the New Testament period. And the result of this extreme persecution uh, was that, uh, as Paul points out, those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And some translations say will face worldly troubles or troubles in the flesh. And then that, so that's the first reason, because of this present distress, which we believe is referring to the persecution against believers. And he says in verse 29, the time is short, or as the Christian Standard Bible says, time is limited. And it's certainly true we only have one life to live. We should make the most out of it, and that includes considerations for spreading the gospel and the ministry to which God calls each and every one of us. So while that's too in, true in general, of course, it had special significance and meaning to the early persecuted church because there was no uh, promise uh, that each person that he him, that was, was hearing this epistle themselves uh, would live a long life or live out their natural life because of the persecution that was taking place. And so they had to take that into consideration about their decision to marry as well. So because of these realities uh, of the present distress and persecution in the limited time that they have in general, but specifically in reference to that persecution, uh, uh, Paul is, Paul is telling them uh, in his advocacy for celibacy for those that have the grace and the calling to receive it, he says, I want you to be free from concern, or as the, the English Standard Version says, free of anxieties. He points out that the single man and the single woman is concerned about the Lord's affairs. That's the primary, uh, uh, you know, priority in their life, but the married man and the married woman is considered about concerned about the fair, the affairs of this world, or, or better put, the affairs of this life and how to please their spouse. And so that's certainly true even today. I mean, if one is single uh, and doesn't have uh, the responsibilities of marriage, they have more time, more energy, more effort to devote into the things of the Lord and their ministry. Whereas there's some very practical considerations and responsibilities that married people have to one another and to their families that does serve as a, a detraction to some way, shape, or form, form uh, from the ministry. Not necessarily always in a, in a completely negative sense, but that, that certainly is true. And so verse 35, Paul summarizes by saying, uh, you know, the reason he's advocating uh, for singleness, celibacy for those who are called and have the grace to receive it, is that you may live in a right way in undivided attention to the Lord. 
So those are the pros of celibacy or singleness that Paul points out. But then he also points out one very big con right off the bat in verse number two here. Uh, he points out that the temptation of sexual immorality uh, is a strong one. And of course, here the Greek word is pornea, often translated fornication, King James and some other. So 1 Corinthians 7 and 2 English Standard Version, as we read, says, Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. So in answering the question, he points out that this is the normal, uh, common response that most people have because of the almost universal uh, temptation for sexual immorality is that you can avoid it by being married and being faithful to your spouse. The Christian Standard Bible renders it because sexual immorality is so common. Again, verse 7 points out that celibacy, singleness, is a gift that not everyone has. And so many people, indeed most people, will become married to avoid that temptation and the destructive ends of that temptation. So that's that's one big con. And then Paul doesn't mention it specifically here in 1 Corinthians 7, but more generally in a biblical context, another con uh, to, rem to, to remaining celibate uh, and therefore single is, comes from Genesis 2. And the Lord's declaration, uh, the Lord God said, it is not good for man, for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so we understand that's for the purpose of many purposes, but uh, to have a help meet or a helper. Um, but but this is uh, seen in the in reference to, you know, the Bible as a whole as kind of the default uh, choice that most people will make. Uh, the whole scripture assumes that most will desire to be joined in marriage. But this, this does not mean that there's something wrong or inferior if one doesn't marry. It's a prerogative that we have. And as I pointed out, as Paul points out, there are certainly particular benefits or advantages to remaining single and celibate. So that is kind of Paul's response. It's not a yes or no question. It depends on the grace that God has given you and whether you're called to receive singleness and celibacy for life or if you uh, take the more common path of, of being married and therefore avoiding the temptation of, of sexual immorality. Now, this understanding that there is not a single answer, but it's contingent upon your circumstances and calling and grace from God can be a bit confusing to some due to the statement in verse 1. Statement in verse one says it is good for a man not to touch a woman or as the English Standard Version and NIV both render it. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sex sexual relations with a woman. Now, at the, to, to this point, I want I, I want to make this brief, but but clear the scholarly consensus on this grammatically, linguistically seems to be uh, that this statement is not. A, an instructive declarative statement from Paul himself. Rather, when Paul makes this statement in 1 Corinthians 7 and 1, he is quoting from a letter containing questions or topics that the Corinthian church had asked of him. So many Bible translations actually place quotes around the statement, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman or a man not to touch a woman. 
uh, in the King James Version, put quotes around that, recognizing that he is quoting from another source, specifically the letter that he was sent from the Corinthian church. Uh, some of the Bible paraphrases actually reform it into a question form or say something that affects this is the question that you asked me or this is the statement that you made. So whatever the reason for that and whatever that seems to be uh, the common understanding of what's going, what's going on here. So Paul is not making the declarative instructive statement. It's not good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman. Rather, he's quoting that phrase or that question that was asked of him. And then in the verses that follow, he's asking it. And by the way, this is not the only place in Corinthians. Where it's just the first of the many questions he's asked. There's several other statements he makes going through other chapters of 1 Corinthians where it believes the same thing is at play, play here. He's quoting the source and then he's responding to the topic or the question. And so, uh, as I mentioned before, is, uh, inferred in this question is, is the question, uh, is there something wrong with sex that would make it better to avoid marriage and therefore avoid sex altogether? Is that Paul doesn't list that as a reason for celibacy. He lists it that we can do the Lord's work and not be distracted by the practical and logistical uh, 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 things in life that marriage will place upon us. But Paul never makes the argument that, that there's something wrong with sex in general within the confines of marriage. Uh, so the answer would be no. Uh, not, Paul didn't list that as a reason. And not only that, but the biblical context of sex, again, within the confines of a lifelong marriage between husband and wife, uh, it's clear from Scripture uh, that there is no problem with sex in that, in that context, in that context. Uh, in that biblical uh, confinement, if you will. In fact, in verse number 28, Paul says, if you get married, you have not sinned. Now we think of sin, to, you know, to, meet, to mean a violation or trans, uh, uh, transgression of God's law, which it is, but most literally it simply means to miss the mark. In other words, Paul is saying you have not erred from God's plan. You've not disappointed God in any way if you decide to be come married and enter into a sexual union with your spouse. There's nothing, there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but that, and that's obvi also obvious from Genesis and the purpose, one of the many purposes for which he made uh, sexual union between a husband and wife. And in fact, Hebrews chapter 13, verse four says, marriage is honorable and all and the bed undefiled. Uh, the ESV says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. So we understand that the, the, the meaning of this is within the confines of an honorable marriage, a marriage the way God set it up, that the bed is undefiled and should be considered undefiled, that there's, nothing, there's no sin or wickedness uh, involved in sexual relationship between a husband and wife. So kind of to, to, to get to the heart of the question that was asked of me for this podcast about verse number five, let me just quickly again start over with verse number one and uh, uh, comment on each verse. And then uh, so we get a broader kind of understanding of what this whole passage means. And this time I'll read the King James Version because I know many are more familiar with it. So, and, and then we'll... we'll We'll cap this off with verse number five, which was what was specifically asked about. So verse number one, now concerning the things whereof you wrote me, is it 
uh, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. I've kind of already answered this again. Touch is a euphemism for sexual relations, which is actually translated as such in many in many translations. So the question being asked, is it better to remain celibate, which we already discussed, keeping in mind that this statement is most likely a quote from a letter from the Corinthians. So we've covered that. Verse number two, nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. So this begins with this in, in, the, in the King James Version, nevertheless, this is a Greek primary participle day. Uh, and it can be continuative, in other words, like continue from the previous thought. But these primary particles can also be adversative, in other words, uh, to express opposition to the previous thought. So he's quoting this, this statement from the Corinthians that they're asking about. But I believe he's using this, this uh, participle in the adversative uh, adversative sense. In other words, you're asking me... Uh, you're, 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 I'm quoting you of saying it is good for a man not to touch a woman, but I'm saying no, because of sexual immorality is so rampant, let every man have his own wife and every woman have her own husband. And so he is, uh, he is, uh, expressing opposition to that thought that he quoted. I believe that's the proper interpretation there. Either way, it's very clear that he is giving instructive declarative statement about the union between a husband and a wife. And so in other words, I believe what he's saying here is that the appropriate response to avoiding sexual immorality is not necessarily to devote to lifelong celibacy, although that's an option which he elaborates on, but uh, also an appropriate response, and indeed the most common response, is to commit to abstinence until marriage and then to remain loyal and faithful to your spouse. And so he answers this, uh, this, this question or this statement that it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. He's saying, except and unless it's between uh, monogamous, uh, lifelong uh, marital relationship between a husband and a wife. And so it says here, let every man have his own wife and every, let every woman have her own husband. This Greek word have is, is the Greek word is echo. It means to hold or to possess or to cling to. Uh, so to cleave or to join closely with also reminiscent of that one flesh, uh, uh, distinction in, in Genesis 2. So what this is referring to is to devote to or to commit to to life. And certainly uh, as this word have is also not only pointing out that, you know, it's a lifelong commitment uh, to marriage, which is the biblical teaching, but obviously it's being used here as an idiom or a euphemism more specifically. And the this, uh, Christian Standard Bible actually renders this, this phrase each man should have sexual relationships with his own wife and each, each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. So it's using the word have in the sense of a euphemism for, for sexual activity. And I think that's also appropriate in the context. So move on to verse number three. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence and likewise also the wife to the husband. So the King James Version actually translates this as correctly as it can be because that's literally what it says. To render due benevolence. Render means to give, to deliver, to deliver or discharge. Due 
uh, is about the idea of owed debt or obligation, benevolence, meaning kindness or goodwill. So we're supposed to give our obligation of kindness or to deliver the owed debt of goodwill. So this is definitely a euphemism referring as the CSB and the NIV render it, fulfill his marital duty and the wife likewise, or as the English Standard Version renders it, to give conjugal rights. Conjugal just is a word pertaining to marriage. And here we have different paraphrases of the of the of the New Testament that are that are interesting. Uh, one, the contemporary English version renders that husbands and wives should be fair with each other about having sex. The uh, the God's words paraphrase renders that husbands and wives should satisfy each other's sexual needs. Now, I'm not huge on paraphrases, although they can be helpful to understand the intention and the meaning that uh, the scripture has. And I believe in this case, that certainly is the intention and the meaning, although it doesn't say that literally, that's what they're saying in a euphemistic way without actually stating it outright. In verse number four, the wife hath not power over her own body, but the husband, and likewise also the husband hath not power over his own body, but the wife. Power here, the Greek word means to exercise uh, power, authority, or control. So this is just referring to the idea that in marriage we belong to each other. We submit to one another. Uh, we yield ourselves to one another. And that's true in every area of marriage, but it also extends to the area of, of sexual activity and sexual fulfillment. And in a monogamous marriage, in a monogamous uh, marriage between two people, there's only one person in each person's life that can fulfill this need or desire, which really emphasizes uh, the need uh, to submit to one another. And I, uh, it's very clear that Paul deliberately makes sure that the reader understands that this goes both ways. It's not a matter of, of, of a man uh, exerting himself upon uh, his wife, uh, but Paul says that, uh, that husbands and wives uh, don't belong exclusively to themselves, but they also belong to the other person for the purpose of sexual fulfillment in this in this case, in this sense. So it goes both ways. And uh, again, this is reminiscent of Genesis 2, uh, and where Jesus says a man uh, shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. This idea of leave, weave, and cleave, that they belong to one another, and they're no longer two separate people entirely in this in this spiritual and figurative sense. And then verse 5, which is the question that was originally asked specifically, we get to this word, uh, defraud ye not one another, or, or ye, defraud ye not one the other. And the Greek word here is apostero. It means to keep back by fraud, or to deprive, or to rob, or to despoil. So most translations simply say, do not deprive one another or do not defraud one another. Those are the two translations that are very the most common. Uh, the ISV, which is a literal translation that I really like, says this, do not withhold yourselves from one another. Again, the paraphrases for this are telling as well. One says, don't refuse to give your bodies to each other. Another says, don't refuse sex to each other. And then verse number five, 
Uh, here's the exception clause. So that's that's basically what the question was getting at. What does that word defraud mean? And in this sense, it means don't don't hold back from one another. Don't refuse to give uh, uh, to provide sexual fulfillment to one another. And this is defraud. That's what we mean by defrauding one another. And then to finish out the verse, verse five, except it be for cons uh, with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again. So let me just summarize this briefly. Basically, I believe Paul is saying something like this. There's no spiritual rationale why married husbands and wives should have to refrain from sex for any reason. But if you feel compelled to do so for a special temporary time of devotion or consecration, he specifically mentions fasting and prayer, then there's some practical guidelines here that we should consider. Number one, it must be with consent is what the King James Version says. Other translations say it must be mutually agreed upon. So this is not a unilateral decision. Again, remembering we're submitting and yielding ourselves that we don't have complete autonomy and control, but in a marital relationship, we belong to one another. So it has to be with consent. It has to be mutually agreed upon. And then the second consideration is for a time or for a season. The English Standard Version actually renders it for a limited time. And so this, this mutually agreed upon limited time is not just for anything, but it's for the purpose to give yourselves to fair pra uh, prayer and fasting. In other words, uh, that is the only reason that Scripture gives why you would want to have a, a, a time. And again, Paul's not saying this is not incumbent upon you. This is not what I'm instructing to do. This is not what I'm advising you to do. I'm saying don't defraud one another. Don't withhold from one another. But if you do, only for this reason and only mutually agreed upon for a limited time. And so, again, it's not for selfish reason. It's not to manipulate one another. It's not to punish or reward one another for good or bad behavior. Um, but we submit to one another. We yield to one another. We fulfill each other's uh, sexual uh, needs in this way, uh, except uh, if it's mutually agreed upon limited time for the purpose of prayer and fasting. And even then he advises come together again after this limited time. In other words, after this time period is up, well, resume normal process of submitting and yielding one to another and fulfilling one another's needs. And the reason for that, he says, so that Satan may not tempt you because of a lack of self-control. The King James Version says because of uh, of incon uh, incontinency, which means a lack of self-control. So obviously one of the most pronounced benefits and blessings of marriage, not the only one, but one of the most pronounced ones is sexual intimacy and the, the freedom to enjoy sexual activity with one's spouse. So when married people are sexually frustrated or unfulfilled, it can certainly become an area of temptation in one's life. And as this verse of scripture points out, an, uh, an area of temptation that the adversary, uh, Satan, will attempt to exploit uh, to cause us to sin or to invite us to sin. Now, let me say this. Ultimately, each one of us is individually responsible for our own morality. And that includes our own sexual uh, morality and sexual purity. Uh, we're all responsible for our own self-control in this area. But according to this verse of scripture, at least to a degree, 
uh, one spouse may share in the culpability of the negative consequences of unfulfillment. If one is depriving their spouse uh, of sexual fulfillment intentionally uh, and unilaterally uh, and temptation uh, results, uh, again, we're all responsible for our own um, self-control. We're all responsible for our own moral and sexual purity. Uh, but we're not blameless when we cause our spouse to some stumble in this regard as uh, in the sense of depriving or defrauding uh, them of uh, of their marital rights, as, as Scripture says. So the good news is there's no reason for marital strife due to sexual frustration or due to sexual unfulfillment. When we understand our biblical duty, our biblical responsibility to yield, to submit our bodies to one another, as a matter of due benevolence, or that is owed affection or, 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 or uh, owed kindness to one another, which is our, our marital obli obligation, our marital duty, but also the right that we have in marriage. So this is why, to answer the question, uh, why Paul points out that it is very important not to deprive, or as the King James Version says, not to defraud uh, one another, to defraud our spouse. Uh, so that we can be holy and blameless before God. So that's 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5. Uh, that's the analysis and interpretation of that portion of Scripture. And I hope it was helpful uh, to some of our listeners here today. Well, that's all the time we have for today. I knew we'd probably only get to one question. We'll get to many others in future episodes. So until next time. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Thank you once again for listening. Take care. Until next time.